Psalm 8 tonight. Psalm 8, hear the holy word of our holy God. For the choir director on the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. You've crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, we pray, Almighty God, that we tonight in this worship service, as we conclude the Christian Sabbath, our Lord's Day, that we would conclude the day worshiping you in spirit and in truth. We desire to worship you perfectly, Lord, but we know that we'll fall short of your glory. And how thankful we are, Father, that we have a mediator, a sympathetic high priest, who ever lives to make intercession, even offering our imperfect worship to you through his own perfect hands and perfect office. Accept us, Father, always in Christ, and may we find him tonight, even in this psalm. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We looked at this particular psalm previously. I'm shortening the... um, my psalm program by maybe a few. Maybe we'll get 23 psalms in this series rather than 25. I'm kind of consolidating a few sermons that I'm planning. And so previously from Psalm 8, we spent most of our time as we considered Christ in the Psalms um, round about verse 4 to to verse 8. And in that particular psalm, we focused in on the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gnostics, ancient heretics, would say all flesh essentially is bad, only the spirit is good, the body is a prison for the soul, it's worth nothing before God. But that's not true. The Bible says in the beginning, God created all things by the word of his power out of nothing, space of six days, everything was good and very good. He made man with a body, and he made man with a soul or a spirit, if, you're, if you hold to trichotomy. But it, we have a material part, and we have an immaterial part. And both the material part and the immaterial part is good. So the Gnostics are wrong. And so Jesus Christ, that's why one of the reasons why John, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, around about verse 14 to 18, is keen to say, and Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And he uses that word, which is kind of a poke in the eye to the Gnostics, he came in the sarks. There are two words in Greek that can mean body or flesh. Soma means body, sarks means flesh. 
And he specifically said, Jesus is the word come in the flesh, the sarks, to say that Christ has a real body. He's a real human being. He's not an angel. He's not, it's not a phantasm or a spirit. We look here, what is the son of man? Jesus Christ eternally is the son of God. Essentially, he's the second person of the divine Godhead. And he became the son of man at his incarnation. So we looked at that. And we've said previously, and we say this probably a lot, Jesus Christ is the second Adam. He had to be a real man, a real human being with a real, a real body. And I think that our catechism says a reasonable soul. And what they're getting at there is another heresy of the ancient church called dynamic monarchianism. Fancy words. And essentially said, Jesus is, he has a real body, but he doesn't have a real soul. He has a divine soul. He can't. Because if he has a human body and a non-human divine soul, he's not a fit mediator. So that's why the divines are keen to say reasonable, a real soul. Real body, real soul. Because he's going to represent in the covenant real human beings like us. And he is going to succeed where the first Adam failed. And that's why he, it's necessary that he be a real human being. And I, I prayed it a little bit. In my prayer, Christ takes to himself humanity so that he might be a sympathetic high priest. We've all read the book of Job. You remember the comforters that come to Job? Job has lost his children. Job has lost all his wealth. Job has lost all his health. And then he's lost all of his children. And then he has these wonderful, air quotes, comforters coming to him. And what do they say essentially to Job at the end of it? It's your fault. You have done something wrong. It's your fault. That's kind of the sympathy that we can sometimes expect from man. We, we shouldn't, for Christian to Christian, but man is not a very good sympathizer. The God-man is an exceedingly good sympathizer. And so we spent most of our time looking at the humanity of Christ. Today, if you look at Psalm 8, verse 2, is what I hope to unpack um, thematically. And verse 2, remember we're looking at passages that we can find in the Psalms and then we can go over to the New Testament and find the counterpart being quoted by the Holy Spirit as that is this. So Psalm 8, verse 2, this is what we're going to look at. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. In a few minutes, we're going to look at the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew's gospel, quoting that passage. And he actually quotes it. This is obviously from the Hebrew Bible, it, it, translated into the English. Jesus quotes the Greek Hebrew Bible, which is the Septuagint. Sometimes you see it listed with an LXX. I'm 58, and so when we were kids, they would teach us how to count with n Roman numerals. I don't know if they do that now, and probably not, because I don't think the kids can even do cursive but they, probably not. We used to do learn how to count with the Roman numerals. So it's LXX, 70. He, he quotes that. So I want to see here from this passage, I want to deal with, remember we're, we're considering um, the priesthood of Christ, the kingship of Christ, um, the, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Here I want to look at the praise of Christ. And specifically we're looking at the praise of Christ by little children. And it uses the word, and we'll look at this in the Greek later, but nursing babies even. And so even by their very existence, they praise 
God come in the flesh. But we'll look at that. That's my desire to look at the praise of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in the book of Romans, I think chapter 15, and then maybe 1 Corinthians chapter 10 or 11, it quotes these from the Old Testament. These things are written for our what? For our instruction. So for us as Christians, I just shared this with a, a person who, by their own profession, told they, me they were not Christians. And they said they were spiritual but not Christians. And so I said, I am a Christian. And they wanted to know this little church, how do we see things, reality in this church? And they said, we're Bible Christians. We want to take what we believe about God from the Bible and what duty, what practice we do from, from the Bible. And so the Bible is our instruction manual. Will it tell us how to change a tire or what antibiotics to take? None of those things. So when we talk about sola scriptura or the sufficiency of scripture, which is a Protestant concept, we mean everything sufficient for salvation and godliness is here. This is the second Timothy chapter three, 14 through 17. Everything to love God and serve God is in the Bible. Everything necessary. Now, other things, what you're going to do on your fancy diet, all of those things, they're not in the Bible. Um, and so we want, we want to be instructed by the Bible. And so when we come here, we want the Word of God to teach us what God tells us about Christ. In this instance, children who are praising Christ for being Christ. Hosanna in the highest, that kind of thing. So... We want to see the various lessons, and I'm going to argue that there are probably, I don't know, three, four, five, six lessons that we can pull out from the notion of Christ being praised. But I want to step back, and I want to look at this particular psalm first from a bird's eye view, a macro view of what we're looking at. We sometimes talk about um, the various kinds of prayers that we can offer as believers. Have you ever heard the, the word acts? is an acronym. Acts is adoration. C is confession. T is thanksgiving. And S is supplication. And supplication is just a fancy word for supplication, for, for petition or for asking. And so when you look at Psalm 8, which one of those types of prayers does Psalm 8 fall into? Is it adoration? Is it confession of sin? Um, is it, uh, is, is it um, supplication? Is it adoration? Those kind of things. And when we come here and we look at this, we see that this is not primarily a petition passage. It's not the believer asking God for something. And I'm not denigrating Psalms or our asking God for anything. The Bible says if you lack anything, ask God. I, I think... If we were to quantify, to count up how, what kind of prayers we offer and we would, were to, to, um, to qualify them, I would say probably most of our prayers are petitions. We're asking for something. I, I don't think that's wrong. We are needy children and our God is a loving Heavenly Father. But this is not that. This is praise. This is adoration. This isn't even... This isn't even thanks to some extent. Thanks is thanking God for something that he's done. This is just adoring God for who he is. This is ultimately, it's adoring God for bringing Christ in. It's adoring Christ for being who he is. So this is, this is, this is adoration. This is, just, this is just 
verbal love of God. It's, a, it's praise. And I would just say this by way of pastoral application. If you know Christians that have the gift of prayer, sometimes you can have the gift of prayer but not the grace of prayer, and I know that sounds oxymoronic, means that you can say beautiful sounding things but your heart is not in it. But let's just presuppose the gift means the grace. If you know people that are good prayers, they're good prayers, you pray with them and you are edified by them, one of the ways to grow in our prayer life is to use the Bible in our prayer life. So if you pray and you're running out of fodder to pray, what to pray? Do, do what Martin Luther did. Do what George Muller did. Open the Bible. And then you take the words that God has given to us and you pray them back to God. And so if you say, well, my praise lasts for a second because then I forget what to praise God for and I just go to petitions. Well, if you need help in that, then you go here and you just praise God through the whole psalm. And you think, well, I'm praising someone else's words. If you try that, my sense is they'll pretty quickly be your words. So this is just an admiration of God in song. And what we learn, it's an expression of faith. What we learn about faith, faith is something inward. It's heart. It's it's everything. It's our heart. It's our it's our intellect. It's our uh, emotions. It's our will. But heart. What is in your heart will come out of your mouth. This is in Matthew chapter twelve. What you believe in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. What people believe about Jesus Christ is going to come out of their mouth. It will. If you sit around them long enough, they're going to tell you what they think. What people think about the God of the Bible will come out of our mouths. It, it, it's it's like. If you love your wife, the love of your wife will come out of your mouth. It just will. And so what we're looking at is an expression of faith, an adoration of God, a praise of God, but it's the stuff of the heart. This is a Galatians 2.20. Paul says, Christ who is in me is coming out. The love of God in Christ is coming out of me. And so... And this is not to show other people that we love Christ. I would argue we probably praise better when we're alone, but the heart that loves God will express its love of God. And I'll say even this, the heart that loves God will express its love of God even in song. Some of you all have beautiful voices and you can really pray, sing. And I love to hear people that can sing. I I listened to, who's the guy I listened to this morning? Lee, um, oh, Lee Williams, and I listened to the O'Neill twins. And, and I, uh, Jesus dropped the charges. These guys can sing. They can flat out, like with no music, nothing. They just sing. And it sounds wonderful. But even if you can't sing and sound wonderful, when you're alone, don't you sing to God? When you're alone and no one can hear you, don't you just sing your heart out and make your own little songs up to Christ? And so we have the heart of praise to God. And what we're looking at, a couple of themes. One George touched on this morning. He touched on the goodness of God. And actually, the other theme that we find touched on in the praise of God is the theme that George touched on previously, the greatness of God. And so the psalmist and these little children are going to praise God, one, for his greatness, 
and then two for his goodness, and they do it in two, two realms. They praise God for his goodness in creation. The unbeliever looks at the Grand Canyon. The unbeliever looks at a beautiful sunset and says, what? This is amazing. This is beautiful. The unbeliever watches his wife give birth to a child, and what does he think? This is amazing. This is wonderful. But what does the believer think when he goes outside and sees the green grass and the blue sky? What do we think? My God in heaven made this. What a glorious God. What a wise God. What a good God. That's what we think. We think of Psalm 19 and the glory, the heavens declare the glory of God. A beautiful sunset. We give God the glory. The birth of our children, holding our grandchildren. We give glory to God. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And so the, the little children will be praising God for his greatness, for his goodness in creation. And then later when we come to Christ's use of this psalm in Matthew's um, gospel, they, we praise God for his greatness and his goodness in redemption, in salvation. So his creation of the natural order, we adore God. His redemption of fallen man, and of course, for the redemption of fallen man, when you think about it, I, I've been thinking about this during the Sunday school hour, when you think about God and the knowledge of God, and you think about it, you think about it. And one of the difficulties that we have in our, our day, we don't, we, don't, we, we don't have enough undivided time, uninterrupted time to really ponder. It's just that blasted phone and the blasted computer We live in such a hectic place. There's no time to just go, wow, look around. Or we don't take the time. But the same is true for our salvation. Where we're so busy, and we don't stop and think, God the Father sent God the Son to come and live and die for me, and the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son to apply redemption to, to make me his child. And to think about that for more than five seconds and if we did, what would we I can't believe this. It's that. We adore, praise, honor, sing. God is great and God is good. He is great and good in creation. He's great and good in redemption. That's the, that's the overview of the particular psalm. And if you are a fan of the psalms, and I'm a fan of the psalms, I had a neighbor who's in glory now. He used to say to me, so I, I read the Psalms, and boy, David is always complaining about this and complaining about that. And I went, I went one, like, like, oh, don't say that. <laughs> Whatever David said there is, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He was criticizing David. And he said, boy, he's kind of just complaining about this and going to God and asking him about this. And it just hurt my feelings to hear someone speak about the Scripture. But it, it brings up something kind of interesting. A lot of the Psalms, which is why they're so popular, are the unburdening of the burdened heart of the psalmist to the God who says, I'll carry your burdens. And so there's a reason the psalmists are always, oh God, help me. Oh God, help me. Because they need help. What this psalm shows us is that there are occasions in the life of the believer that God does lift our spirits. I mentioned it this morning. Sometimes when we say, I'm never going to get better, things will always be harder, we're actually not telling the truth to ourselves, and we overburden ourselves. 
It's always going to be a life of drudgery and begging God to lift me up out of the ash heap. That's not true. God will bring us into places of green pasture, of cool water. God will bring the children to a place where they're not petitioning God for suffering and affliction. They're adoring God for who he is. Beloved, if you're going through affliction and suffering, take it to the Lord. But be keen to be honest in your life. Does God not give you times of reprieve? Where you just are able to say, and we're not denying the hard things. Oh God, you're so good. I don't feel very healthy today. I wish this were different today. But oh God, you're so good. And then we just end up not, not looking at the, the suffering. But we look at our God. And we just adore him. That, that's this. And so don't, don't let the hard times that you do have and we do have rob you of recognizing the greatness and the goodness of God, both in creation and in redemption. That's the overview. So what we're looking at here, go to your um, Bibles, Matthew chapter 21. So Matthew chapter 21. So the Old Testament promises to, to us that in the time of King David, King David was inspired by the Holy Spirit. King David lives around 1000 BC, 1100 BC, something like that. So, a thousand years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit inspires David, acting as a prophet, that little children will praise Christ. And then we're going to come to Matthew chapter 21, and little children praise Christ. Hosanna to Christ. So, a thousand years earlier, God said, God said this is going to happen. The Son of Man will come into the world and he will be adored. The Bible says he came to his own and his own knew him what? Not. This is John 1, 10 through 13. But not everyone den denies Jesus Christ. I had two people testify to me this morning. One person testified to me, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other person testified to me, I'm not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some reject Christ and others receive. Again, I don't want us to always look and say, it's all hardship. It's all unbelief. No, it's not all unbelief. I'm, I'm looking at more two, two people, more than two people who love Christ. And so again, let's not add burdens to ourselves that are not there and say, no, it's, who, who is the prophet? No one serves God but me. I'm the only one that's left Beloved, there are a lot of people that love the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and truth. I know in regards to the greater part of humanity, they're few and they're in the narrow road. I know that. But on the last day, with the coming of Christ in glory, the Bible uses the word myriads and myriads and myriads. There'll be myriads of people who love Jesus. And so what we're being told is when Christ comes, there will be people who say no, but there will be people who say yes. Thou son of David. And I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes the people that say no to Jesus Christ end up proclaiming Jesus Christ and writing two-thirds of the New Testament. You see what I'm saying? 
So if someone says to you on, on Monday, I don't believe in Jesus. Okay, what should you do when you leave their company? Oh, God, open their blind eyes. And what should you expect to see on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, until the day you die, hoping? I praise him. You, you see, we don't know. We, God has elect people. We don't know who they are. And so God takes unbelievers, makes them believers. This prophecy is a thousand years. Uh, a promise. A prophecy is a, a promise. It occur, occurs a thousand years before it comes. We say this all the time. I say it from my own. I say it to myself. The greatest problem we have is unbelief. It's not sickness. It's not the greatest problem we have is unbelief. The greatest problem I have is unbelief. So we are believers that lack faith. So God, Jesus says, "I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you." What should all of us do for the rest of our lives? We should be dancing around, right? Why do Why do I? Why do we? go to heaven sometimes so downcast it's that Lord I believe help thou my unbelief I'm trying to walk by faith but what I can see doesn't look like what I can read in the promise the secret to the Christian life is there's a secret is to believe the word of God to just believe it and when we come here, these little kids, George said this in Sunday school, these little kids are going to teach us a lesson to believe like a child. Quit with the whatabouts. Quit with the what this and that. Quit. My Father in heaven has said, my Jesus has done it. I believe. Well, you're acting like a kid. Great. Because Jesus is going to say, if you're not converted like a little child, you're not going to heaven. So if we can live... If we could believe like little children, oh, we would, be, we, would, we would be more content. So now we come to the New Testament fulfillment. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. I'm going to read from verse 9 to the verse 17 for context. Now, now, now this is Christ. So the crowds going ahead of him, Christ, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118. So there's a couple of quotes from Psalms. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As an aside, we used to say this every Sunday in the Catholic Church. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple. He drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. He actually does this twice. He does this at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter, I think John chapter, I forget which, early of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He said to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer, Psalms. You're making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So picture Jesus. He's in the temple. He's quoting the Psalms. He's applying it to himself. He's flipping over money ta- tables. He's taking scourge. He's, he's whacking the money changers out. He's driving them out. People that are broken, which is everybody, they're coming to him and he's healing them. Now, if you are a minister, if you, you, you are the minister of the church, let's say, and you're there seeing God come in the flesh, healing people. A person can't walk and they can walk. A person can't see and they can see. And he heals them. 
what would you think you would do? God is here. Oh, Jesus, and adore him. So we have two classes. We have one class that actually does that. Oh, God has come in the flesh. And then we have another class who says they gnash teeth. The minister, rabbi, reverend, rejects. And it's the little child that says, Emmanuel is here. Messiah is here. The Bible is being fulfilled in our presence. Praise God. And then the Pharisees and Sadducees are going to rebuke Jesus for the little children praising Christ. The chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, Jesus, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David is messianic. So Jesus is David's Lord and David's son. And they're calling Jesus the Messiah. And Hosanna is Yahweh save now. Yahweh save now, son of David. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, they become indignant. They're angry. And they say to Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? They're mad that the children are praising Christ. Now, just as an application, when you express your love of Christ, and I don't mean, I don't mean like in a, I don't mean to show off for men. When you just, you adore God and you live for him, people are going to be offended with you. Who do you think you are? Oh, you're praising Jesus and you're going to just live for Jesus and you're not going to go with the flow and you're going to live for the Jesus flow. They're not on board with this at all. So sometimes we need to be careful when we're flying high with Christ. There's always a servant of the devil with with a, a fork to pop our joy in the Lord. Not every person that says they're a believer, these guys are the leaders in the church, are stoking that praise of God. They're going to be right there criticizing you, saying, what in the world's going on here? They should be quiet. This is a Presbyterian synagogue. And Jesus says to them what? Yes, yeah, I hear the children praising me. Have you never read? He said to the teachers of the book, have you never read the book it's a, it's a correction. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself, meaning God. He's calling himself God. Christ is saying, I am God, come in the flesh. And the children are acknowledging it, and you haven't even read the Bible. But they actually have read the Bible, but it's what we said this morning from Acts chapter 13. They don't understand the Bible because they're not born again. If you're not born again, you can study the Bible till your, your eyeballs fall out. You don't understand it. I'm not going to talk about the, the guy on the radio, the political talking head that everybody listens to religiously and politically. He's not converted. I just watched a video with him and another guy who people listen to. He's not converted. Say it's okay to watch pornography. It's not a sin. Oy vey, I want to scream. If you're not converted, the Bible is closed to you. And people listen to this. I'm going to get myself crazy. So we have the Old Testament promise of the coming of Christ. We have the New Testament fulfillment of the coming of Christ. We have two classes of people that one acknowledges, one rejects. But I want to bring up something interesting regarding the use, 
regarding the fact that the children are praising Jesus Christ. So, Jesus says in the, um, in the Old Testament Psalms, it says of me that the children will praise me. And so he connects from the, the New Testament to the Old Testament. And he, he says there's a unity there. This is one of the reasons I love the Reformed faith. I wasn't always Reformed. The Reformed church, in my opinion, does a very nice job in showing the, the, the unity of Scripture, the 66 books. And so there's a unity from the old to the new, a unity of themes, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem his people. That's the first coming. And when Jesus Christ comes back the second time, what does he come back the second time for? To gather his people. He comes the first time to procure our salvation. He comes the second time to gather us. And that theme runs from Genesis to Revelation. And so Jesus says, look, the New Testament and the Old Testament are connected. The reason this should be important for us, and we'll probably never get around to the kids, really, but the reason this should be important for us is we live in an age in a day. The internet. The internet can be a wonderful thing. It, it, it can be. You can go, wow, and what's going on here? I don't recommend. <laughs> what's going on here? And then you go there. You're for sure, you've got stage 20, whatever. D- don't do that. But you know what I'm saying. You've got the internet. It can be really fun, really interesting and informative and all those wonderful things. Religiously, the, the internet can be exceedingly dangerous. Exceedingly dangerous. Someone said to me just the other day, hey, I was watching a video of a guy, he's a super teacher on the internet, and he said, when Yahweh was created. And I thought, what? What did you say? He's teaching when Yahweh was created. I'm like, no, 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 no. The very name Yahweh, Jehovah, means he's uncreated. That's what it means. I am that I am. Well, no, the guy's explaining in the Greek and the Hebrew. No, 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 no. Don't go to that guy. And I'm just going to use that as an example. Because we can just point, click, and shoot, and of course no one submits to anybody's authority anymore, we just, well, who's who to tell me? I'm going to find Sally the prophetess. Boy, you can really go to some bad places theologically. Why I, I mention this, when Christ shows the unity of the, um, the, the, the new and the old regarding the praise of Christ by children, there's a massive church in Atlanta. I'm not going to tell you the guy's name. There's a massive church in Atlanta. And I'm going to read to you something, which he's going to deny something that Jesus affirms. You ready? He says this. This is... Um, this minister of a massive church says that New Testament Christians should separate themselves from the expression of faith of the Old Testament. So there's not a unity. There's not a continuity. There should be a radical separation. And we who are New Testament Epic Christians should not look to the Old Testament. And Jesus just says, Psalm 8 is Matthew 21. Jesus says the opposite. That's my point. It's just not some crazy guy that's making up what he says about Yahweh. There are people that look nice, sound nice, and they have big churches, and they don't sound unorthodox that are not orthodox. Here's here's a snippet. The Christian faith must be unhitched from the Old Testament. The Christian faith must be unhitched from the Old Testament. Jesus just connects Psalm 8 to Matthew 21. The minister, if you're in a church 
And the minister says, unhitch the old from the new. What should you say? I'm never coming back again. And you should leave this job and find a job that you're fit for. He goes on. Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. His understanding of the apostolic church. The apostolic church unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulation of the Jewish scriptures. One more. The Old Testament should not be seen as a go-to source regarding any behavior in the church. I can't even tell you how wrong that is. And wrong doctrine produces what? Wrong practice. Jesus doesn't unhitch the Old Testament to the New Testament. He connects it. So this is where, and again, I'm not feeling very persnickety. Every once in a while, you'll meet people who say this. I'm a New Testament-only Christian. You meet these people. That's this guy. I'm a New Testament-only Christian. Well, did God the Holy Spirit inspire Genesis to Malachi, 39 books? Yes, Why would you jettison two-thirds of God's inspired word? Is bad theology. Is bad theology. And we should submit ourselves to the scripture. And then we should find people that they themselves are in submission to other people and they're required to be orthodox according to the Bible. And we should test everything we hear from the scripture. And so I say that to this, and I'm not going to pick up my Baptist brothers. I was a Baptist. I love... Baptist and most of the people that have come to this church have come out of the Baptist church. In relationship to this, Jesus is going to use two words that mean little children, little children, little children. He's going to use in other passages, he actually uses a term in the Greek that means a suckling, a baby that's still at the breast, are going to bring praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I was a Baptist, again, I'm not picking, this is, and if you say, well, I can explain that, explain it to me later. So, so, What we would say is, only when you're old enough, which is usually 7 to 12, to express your faith in Jesus, should you be admitted to the church by water baptism. And I know it's just general. At 7 to 12, the reason all Baptist kids get baptized at 7 to 12 is not because they come to faith at 7 to 12. It's that they have enough cognitive maturity to express their faith sufficient to, to convince their folks in the eldership. So... It's much different than having faith. It's the expression of faith. It's the the level of the maturity of faith. And I'm not picking on it, but what they say essentially in their doctrine, they deny in their practice, which I'm very thankful for. I did. I denied in my practice. They're saying essentially we don't have any children members of the church. You're not going to be a three-year-old member of Christ Church. You're not a two-year-old member of Christ Church. You have to wait till you're 7 to 12 to say I accepted Jesus. I'm not picking on that. But I I don't think it's in keeping with the, the unity of the Scripture. Christ has, two, Christ has one-day-old baby, baby members of the church. He has two-year-old members of the church. He has three-year-old members of the church. This, this word, there's a couple of words. Pais, he uses the word pais, P-A-I-S. And then later in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, chapter 19, he uses the diminutive form. So pais means anything from 12 to like three. And the diminutive means from a suckling from a nursing baby to a three-year-old. And he actually uses those words. They praise me. 
we say, well, pastor, these little, these kids are actually saying Hosanna in the highest. They are expressing their faith. Yes, they are. So they clearly can't be a suckling. Two classes here. One, the, the nursing baby praises the Lord Jesus Christ by their very existence. Matthew Henry, which is one of my favorite commentators. If you only have one commentary, get Matthew Henry. He says, little children, by their very existence, gives glory to God. That's this. How could a little baby nursing at their mother's breast give glory to God? By nursing at their mother's breast, they give glory to God. How? By their existence. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You're just a chance of like sludge that came together a bazillion years. Are you kidding me? Even the heathen, look, how does it? By their very existence. So even the existence of little babies, God says, these babies give me glory, and he's using it to poke it in the eye of the Pharisees. Little children fulfill their purpose, Pharisee, and you don't. And then as regards to the little children praising him, Hosanna in the highest, praise Jesus. He's using a word that can mean 12 to 3. I'm going to say something. When I was a Baptist, in I was raising my kids. I raised my little children like a Presbyterian who loves Jesus, like an Episcopalian who loves Jesus. What did I say? Kids, love Christ. We're going to have Bible time. Let's worship Jesus. Okay, three-year-old. Okay, four-year-old. Let's pray. And what did all my kids think when they were three, four, or five years old? We're Christians. Mom is a Christian. Dad is a Christian. Brother is a Christian. Christian brother, sister is a Christian. And guess what? They are. You don't think you can have a little three-year-old or four-year-old say, I love Jesus. Praise Jesus. Yeah, everybody in this room has had three and four-year-olds do that. That's this. And they're members of the church. And God said, the little children are going to praise me. And the little children praise him. I'm going to read a few verses. Again, this, this isn't a discussion on, on baptism or anything like that. And so what I denied it previously as a, as a Baptist, what I denied in my propositional theology, I actually affirmed in my practice, so I don't really lose any sleep over it. But, but I want to read a few things, and then we'll wrap up. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child to himself and he set him before him. And that's the diminutive form. This is a little kiddo. This is a little one. And he says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is these kids. Um, I've said to my wife on a number of occasions, sometimes it's really fun for me to teach younger people who are inquisitive in the Christian faith rather than say like 40, 50, 60 year old people who are, were already like solidified in our own religious views. One is kind of easier. Oh, okay, so how does this work? And okay, wow, isn't that interesting? And look at this. The other person already says, I already know this is the way it's supposed to be and I've got my 67 volume set and I'm not teachable. And Jesus says, 
unless you're teachable, unless you humble yourself. Jesus, this is what the the child says. My father has said that he will do it, therefore my father will do it. Why will he do it? Because he said it. Oh, posh, posh, you little kid. Jesus said he will save me and bring me where he, he is. Why do you believe that? Because he said he'll save me and bring me where he is. Oh boy, these kids. These kids are, and they show us something. You don't have to be 15 to be converted. You don't have to be 35 to be converted. Jesus Christ, John, John the Baptist leapt at his mother's womb. David says, I trusted in, in God from my mother's breast. David, Jeremiah says, before I was conceived, my, God knew me. So God can convert you in the womb. He can convert you at one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old. You could have a three-year-old kid who's converted because this, he converts in the young age, middle age, old age. Young, young, young minds are good minds to, to train up in the way of Jesus Christ. But this is meant to shame the enemy. The kids praising Jesus and the supposed big adults and the teachers, they're the enemies. The Bible says in the book of um, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, we all want to be thought highly of. No one likes to be thought lowly of. We want to be thought that we're enlightened, we're intellectual, particularly as Presbyterians, we want to be thought of smart. God says, I'm going to choose the foolish things of the world. Just literal kids. Here's the rabbi, teacher, reverend. He doesn't know Jesus. He's an enemy. And God takes a little bitsy and says, they know me. That little lowly kiddo indicts the adults, the leaders, for their unbelief. Beloved, I pray that we never... um, We have to walk by faith and not by sight. There are so many perplexing things in the Bible. Even Christ is perplexing. If we let's just be honest, there are so many things about our holy faith that we just we say that we do. I can use big words. Oh, I know what I'm talking about. And then when you start to think about it, remember John Newton. Towards the end of John Newton's life, he said, "My memory is almost gone. My strength is shot." But I know this. Christ is a great Savior. Beloved, it's, it's a good thing to be taught from little children who love Jesus how to praise. And it's a good thing to just make yourself a little child. Jesus, you are the Christ. You're good. You're great. And I love you. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.